Our sponsor today is GLSA. For those non-members who may be dropping in on the call today, welcome. Uh, and GLSA is Group Legal Services Association. It's an affiliate of the American Bar Association. It's a professional membership group uh, representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. And uh, check it out at glsaonline.org. My name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. Our teleconference today is The Promise and Peril of Blockchain and ICOs with Amy Wan. Um, so I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest, uh, Amy Wan, who is a California lawyer and the founder and chief legal hacker at Bootstrap Legal. Uh, she's previously a partner at Crowdfunding Lawyers. She's general, uh, general counsel at Patch of Land, named to the ABA's top 10 women to watch in legal tech, co-founder of Legal Hackers Los Angeles Meetup Group. Uh, she studied at the London School of Economics and the University of Southern California. I'm just exhausted reading all of that, Amy. Um, if you could <laughs> tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I basically uh, look at the intersection of law and technology, wherever it happens to be interesting, right? And so for the past couple of years, I've been very involved in the crowdfunding industry, and that obviously involves a lot of securities law. Um, securities, for those who don't quite know what it is, it's basically capital markets or, you know, the it's basically the law around raising capital, right? And that's really relevant to today's topic because basically in the past year, this thing called ICOs have really taken off. ICOs, for those who don't know, are initial coin offerings and token sales. And really, it's actually just a subset of crowdfunding. I think a lot of people don't quite understand that. They think it's something super brilliant, super new. And crowdfunding is not even that... Um, new as well. Crowdfunding is really just online group investment. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I run Bootstrap Legal. We are a legal technology company and we are actually putting out a new product right now in the blockchain space. Um, I think this might be specifically interesting to attorneys because the space that we're specifically looking at is in smart contracts. Um, smart contracts are Basically, you know, for every lawyer who writes traditional English contracts, smart contracts are like that, except they're done in code. And um, the other interesting aspect of them is, uh, you know, because they're often written in if-then rules, right, they are basically self-executing and they're immutable. But what we found is, you know, despite all the rhetoric that's out there, that smart contracts are going to put lawyers out of jobs and, you know, that sort of stuff, um, contracts are actually incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, we, we found this niche, um, and, I'm, and I'm happy to, you know, talk about later what we plan to do in it. That's That sounds fantastic. And um, I'm just so happy to have you here today because... Obviously, you're, you know, the space, <laughs> you know, you know what you're talking about. And uh, that's kind of the opposite of me when it comes to uh, blockchain and ICO. So I guess I'm the perfect, perfect person to be asking you questions so I can learn myself. Um, but first, let's start out with, um, you know, I just want to get to know you a little bit 
first uh, and, and have the attendees that are listening in learn a little bit more about you and what got you motivated? You know, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Southern California in a little tiny suburb called Hacienda Heights. Um, you know, just very, I, I guess to me, it was a pretty normal community. Um, huh. uh, you know, went to undergrad at USC. I, I, I actually started college as a pre-med major mostly because my parents made me. <laughs> but um, I think through college, I, I found my way and actually discovered that, you know, the thing I really care about is community building, it's social justice, it's, you know, access to justice. And so that's really why I went to law school. I mean, I can get into the longer story of like, you know, during college, I I went and did an internship at a hospital in Ghana. And, um despite working in the hospital, that was like the summer where, uh, you know, the healthcare workers in Ghana are actually employed by the government. They're paid by the government. And so they all went on strike because the government basically wasn't paying them their salary. Um, that basically, that entire experience made me realize that, you know, grief can heal people's souls and doctors can heal people's bodies. But um, lawyers, I think, have the potential to help people with the situations that they find themselves in. And, and that's really why I went to law school. That's a great story, Amy. Um, I, I remember that we met for the first time, I think it was about four years ago. Um, you, you were starting up um, the Legal Hackers Meetup in L.A. then, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been a couple years now. <laughs> yeah. and And Legal Hackers as its mission, um, it has as its mission to improve access to justice. That's one of the things, right? Yeah, I mean, our scope is pretty broad. It's very educational. We're you're basically bringing together the uh, law and technology communities, but you know, um, one of the end goals is to promote access to justice, hopefully through the use of technology. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that now. Um, so, you, you know, you got drawn to the law to help people. And, and and so now there's, you know, this innovation now where it seems almost every day we're hearing about about how things are changing in, in the law, you know, how technology is being applied to the law. And lately, uh, there's, at least to me, seems to be this white hot interest when it comes to um you know blockchain ICO um ICOs and and then what is the law with regard to that but before we get into whether or not it should be regulated or how how it is to be regulated i mean let's start with the basics what what is a token that's an interesting question, and um, I, I think to properly answer it, I think one has to distinguish between a token and a coin, right? So I think a lot of people by this point have heard of cryptocurrency, and those are what I consider coins. They are they might increase in value, but they're almost like digital gold. Um, and the most popular ones, you know, of course, start with Bitcoin. Now, we've got Litecoin and Ethereum, uh, 
and, and, and those are really, they're, they're almost more so like methods of payment, right? Whereas tokens, I think, are something a little bit different. So tokens can, honestly, they can really be anything. Um, I've seen tokens that represent, you know, interest in funds. There are tokens, we call them utility tokens, that provide some sort of credit for a product or a service. And then, of course, there are tokens that do a whole wide range of other things. You can, you can have tokens um, that basically represent uh, a membership interest in a network or, you know, some sort of buy-in to some sort of decentralized network. So, um, so right now, tokens can be anything, but I think the best way for attorneys to think about them is don't think so much about the technology. Think about what is the function of the token, right? Because every token really actually kind of does something different, and it's really up to the imagination of the founders. I think... I think maybe in a couple years um, we'll start to see more categories of tokens, right? And so we don't have to sit here rubbing our, our foreheads all confused about like, well, what does this token do? What does that token do? There's going to be utility tokens. There's going to be um, membership tokens. There's going to be equity tokens. And equity tokens, you know, once upon a time we had paper stock certificates, now we have like digital stock certificates or e-stock certificates, right? A token mm-hmm. is basically the next iteration of that. It's basically, um, it's, it's equity in a company, but in the form of a digital token. Okay, so, so Bitcoin, Litecoin, all of those are, are kind of holders of value. And then a token is one where there's a, I mean, it it kind of embodies a, a relationship with a particular company. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to describe it. I mean, all of them really may or may not have some sort of value, and I, I think we're going to continue to see that shake out more over the next couple of months and years. Mm-hmm. But really, when I, when I think of Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think – that the way you are bringing them into the world, right, is that you're mining them. Um, you literally have these huge farms, computer servers, most of them are in China, actually, that use incredible computing power, and they they solve these algorithms to bring them into the world. That's not necessarily the case with tokens. With tokens, you might be able to buy them. You might... Um, mine them, but in a way where you're providing some sort of service, right? So, for example, Filecoin was a recent large ICO, and their miners don't solve computer algorithms. They provide data storage mm-hmm. space, right? So um, so each I token can have a different way of creating the value. Exactly. And, and each token ha- can have multiple ways of coming into the world. Wow, I could see how this gets extremely complicated. Um, well, okay, well, the next building block is in, in this world is is blockchain. So if you could explain what that is a little bit and how that fits into into tokens and Bitcoin. Yeah, so blockchain is um, it's a funny thing. It's it is the underlying technology that actually powers all of this space. So when you hear about blockchain startups, they're not necessarily 
ICOs. They're not necessarily tokens or coins, right? They, for example, some of the large um, financial service institutions right now are looking at into using blockchain to power what they do, but they're not necessarily going out and doing an ICO. So blockchain is the underlying technology that powers all of this. What blockchain really is, and, and, and the funny thing is, there's all these people out there who purport to be blockchain experts and this and that. Um, I think it's actually really hard to find anyone who can give um, a really good explanation of what blockchain is and what its values and its limitations are. And I next would tend to be one of those people. But at, at the highest level, it is basically a distributed ledger. You can almost think of it as um, a database, but you know, uh, with a lot more features and a lot more power, right? Um, this is probably the the non-kosher way of saying this, but it's basically a database on steroids. And that database traditionally has been stored on a lot of networks, right? And so um, mm -hmm. the entire, the entire uh, crypto community right now, one of their central tenets, one of their main philosophies is the philosophy of decentralization. So what that really means is, you know, we're not dealing with any central party, any central government, any central company, right? We are really counting on the community to build and, and create uh, our community. Um, and where blockchain comes into that is because Everything is stored on this distributed ledger, and everyone kind of almost owns a copy of that ledger. You can't go and fake a uh, what do you call it a an entry on the ledger because you, for example, you can't go. It's immutable. You can't go back and change the ledger. You can't amend it. You can't modify it. It is what it is, and it's set in stone, and it's meant to do that to uh, protect a number of different things, but one of them is fraud, right? And so, yeah. um, un unfortunately, the downside of this technology that some people right now are trying to solve is that because it takes up so much storage space on so many people's servers and computers, the unfortunate side effect is that it takes up a lot of computing power, and that's one of the big issues that a lot of the um, larger blockchains or more widely used blockchains are trying to grapple with right now. I think one analogy um, that I thought of for, for blockchain that <laughs> is probably definitely aging me, but um, it, it's as if, like in a real small town, you know, if something happened, it probably happened in front of almost everyone. Like, you know, like if there was some transaction, um, like if we were to assume that everyone actually witnessed this transaction happen, then all of those people would be holders of the the truth of that transaction. And, you know, it would be distributed amongst the people that they knew this to be true. And to me, it seems like blockchain is kind of a, digitization of that. Of course, it's much more um, sophisticated and widespread, but the idea from what you explained, it sounds like, you know, there's a transaction and then basically you have 
all of these like virtual witnesses to this transaction that are noting it to be true. Is that is that close? That's a good way of putting it. That's basically what it is. Okay. So okay, so we have Bitcoin, we have and and others like it. Uh, we have tokens that individual companies are issuing. We have blockchain, and then <laughs> cryptocurrency. Is that just like is that like what Bitcoin is and and Litecoin, or is, does it mean something else? Yeah, I mean, essentially, uh, cryptocurrency, I think, now is maybe a slightly older term. It's what we were calling these things back in, like, I don't know, 2012, 2013, when we were trying to give it a formal definition. So people were calling them cryptocurrency or virtual currency, right? Um, but essentially, it's kind of all the same thing. Okay. And then... The ICO, initial coin offering. Um, it, before before I ask you that, is a coin a token or is it is a coin different than a token? You know, I think we're, this is basically where you start getting really deep into semantics. And I think a lot of different people have different opinions, right? At least to me, and this is just my humble opinion, um, I see... Uh, a coin at some sort of it has some sort of value. It's almost like a currency, right? Whereas I see a token as a digital form of value of something else, um, something not a currency. But that's not an exact definition, and you know I'll probably leave it to the crypto community to uh, to, to tear that definition apart. <laughs> Sounds good enough. Okay, so an ICO stands for Initial Coin Offering, and they're like all the rage right now. So what is that about? What is an ICO? Sure. So I think to really properly, you know, explore what an ICO is, you have to go back about, oh, a year. <laughs> there was, um, so there is a protocol called Ethereum. It's a very popular one. And, you know, last year when Ethereum was still very young, its value was actually still relatively low, um, these founders decided to run basically a social experiment. And it was basically a decentralized fund. They called it the DAO or the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, and it basically was exactly. Uh, what it sounds like, right? Uh, they basically said, hey, everybody who holds Ethereum, put some Ether into this fund, and we're all going to decide what projects should be funded. Um, and on top of that, they uh, made basically a social compact on a, a smart contract, and they said, okay, here's a smart contract, here are the rules that our entire community agrees to, and code is law, right? Because everything in a smart contract is in code. Well, that is probably what you can consider to be one of the first ICOs. Um, unfortunately, the DAO did not last. What happened was that um, someone who bought into this network, a hacker, yeah. found a vulnerability in the smart contract. And um, even though they didn't technically break 
they didn't they didn't violate any terms of the contract. Um, for all intents and purposes, you can say that they vi- violated the spirit or the intent of the contract. What they did was they executed um, an action on the smart contract that basically repeated itself um, over and over again simultaneously many times, and they were basically able to run off with you know, 50 to $60 million worth of Ethereum. And, and wow. basically after that happened, um, you know, a lot of uh, not very good things ensued. And, you and know, this was with the very um, first ICO. Yeah, you could probably consider the Dow one of the first ICOs, although people were predicting the rise of ICOs as far as, you know, like, I saw one blog where Naval from AngelList was predicting them maybe three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was probably the first one. And, and basically after that, yeah. a lot of people saw it. Um, they didn't necessarily, you know, uh, take all the lessons from what happened. And people started looking at this as, wow, this is a new way, way to raise money for my project. Now, I hear a lot of criticism of ICOs in, uh, you know, out out on Reddit and the interwebs and whatever, and and for good reason, right? It is a very hyped up space right now. But at the time, there were very few to almost no uh, investors who would be willing to fund a decentralized project. Um, and and I want to harp on decentralization for a second because I think it's a very important concept here. If one open sources their code, they put it out there for everyone to see um, and also everyone to pick at, right. um, you know, you really have no intellectual property and, it, and your company, basically, its value is in its execution. And so, you know, with the concept of decentralization and open sourcing your code, um, uh, it's, it was very difficult to find any investors willing to invest in that. I think one of the earliest VCs that did was Andreessen Horowitz, but aside from them, like even if you go to Silicon Valley today, a lot of them, you know, there are a lot of VCs who don't want to invest anything in crypto, don't want anything to do with the space, don't understand the space, don't can't really justify to their investors investing in a decentralized open source project, right? Um, and so suddenly this became a very uh, appealing way for all these people with all these decentralized project ideas to go and fund their decentralized project. So basically, after the DAO and after people realized, hey, this, this might be a good way to fund decentralized projects, then we start getting this proliferation of ICOs, and, and then you have basically what you see now. And the way I would describe the space now, and maybe this makes me sound a little bit cynical, is that, um, you know, for a while, especially probably over the spring and summer, people were saying, hey, wow, this is awesome. It's this brand new way of raising money, and it's unregulated, which was actually untrue. Um, right. And uh, I, I think today it's kind of gone a little bit overboard, um, although I think we are seeing a correct, slight correction in the space today. But, 
But now you've got all these startups who maybe they couldn't raise money previously or um, they failed at raising money or whatever, but now they're all trying to take their whatever startup concept and back it onto the blockchain so that they can do an ICO purely to raise money. So that I think is problematic. I think there are lots of uh, ICOs happening today that quite frankly should not ICO. But, you know, that's my personal opinion, but I, I think a lot of people also agree with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now, there's there's all of these ICOs that it, it sounds like everyone's banging on the door with with a white paper trying to get, um, I guess, the, the, the credibility that they need uh, with associated experts so that they can launch an ICO. So w what is this about, like, the mechanics of that? Like... A, you know, why, why do people need a white paper? Who are they trying to get to, to help them? Like, what, what is this, this process that's going on right now? Um, that's funny. So one doesn't actually need a white paper. The reason why um, white papers exist is because at the, if you go back to the very, very beginning, right, mm -hmm. when um, Satoshi Nakamoto the anonymous Bitcoin founder uh, introduced Bitcoin into the world. Uh, described um, what Bitcoin was all about. Um, and many folks who have followed uh, in the footsteps in the crypto community over the past several years, every time they put out a project, they also put it out a white paper. I think now we've gotten kind of to the white paper extreme. I mean, there is a reason why um, VCs ask for pitch decks, not white papers, right? Because no one wants to sit there reading white papers all day long. They would rather, you know, quickly glance through a, a very short visual pitch deck to, to get the gist. And, you know, I've been flying up and down from Silicon Valley the past, couple months and the stuff I hear about white papers is a lot of it is nonsense, right? There are literally developers walking around saying, oh, um, make your white paper as long as possible, put a lot of graphics in it, um, put a lot of algorithms in it to make it, it sound as, as not understandable as possible, make it sound like it's really complex and you're really smart so maybe they don't, won't get it and right. they think you're a lot smarter and they'll invest in you. So right, so they'll, they'll just nod and hand you the right money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's unfortunate. You know, um, the legal community is also guilty of overwriting and writing things in a way that is overly complex, very hard for lay people to understand, and I think now the crypto community might be guilty of that as well. I, I don't think white papers should be too long, right? And I also think they sh that they should be written to explain to a non-technical audience um, exactly what they're doing. So that's my personal opinion, but hey, it's just me. <laughs> well, okay, so we've talked about these building blocks of what's going on, and, and you'd mentioned uh, smart contracts, and how does that fit into this as well? So smart contracts, uh, are a very interesting concept. Um, you know, they are basically, like I said earlier, um, 
you know, they're, they're basically in agreement with an execution mechanism, right? And that execution mechanism is written in code. Now, one of the mo more popular smart contract platforms out there, out there today is built on Ethereum. Um, they are called Solidity Smart Contracts. But basically, smart contracts, um, you know, is an offer, uh, an acceptance, uh, hopefully there is usually consideration. Um, the mind-bending part here is that when you enter into a smart contract, you might not even know who you're contracting with. Um, a lot of this is done pseudonymously, so that obviously presents some interesting logistical issues in the twist. Um, but when my co-founder and I were looking at smart contracts, we basically realized, hey, there's a lot of vulnerabilities here, right? You know, as we were monitoring what was happening with the Dow, uh, which lost, what, $50, $60 million, and then right. uh, the first parity wallet hack, um, which is a multi-signature wallet, which uh, is written on the smart contract, I think that lost, uh, I don't know, maybe $30 million the first time around. And then more recently, parity wallet got hacked again through an accident of code deletion, and now, you know, $300 million worth of Ethereum is locked up and they can't, they aren't, they aren't quite sure how they're going to fix that. To me and my co-founder, this presented a huge problem, right? The, the best yeah, lawyer would not say so. sit there. They can't, the best lawyer in the world can't sit there and promise you that they're going to write a perfect dispute list traditional contract. And I don't think that the best coder in the world can sit there and promise you that they can right, perfect, errorless, disputeless, smart contracts. Smart contracts have their place where they become very useful. I think they're mostly useful for small financial microtransactions, um, but that's not what developers are doing today. I mean, there's literally a developer out there I've seen who is taking Series A financing documents and putting them into a smart contract, which I think raises all sorts of red flags, right? Because um, there's a concept called wet code and dry code. Dry code is basically objective triggers, right? Like once, I don't know, Bitcoin reaches 10,000, um, sell, you know, half of my portfolio. And then there are, then there's uh, wet code, which might be more subjective, right? And this is where we get into the legal realm. People might put into their contract, you know, uh, reasonable or words like substantial, things that do not have an objective trigger. And so that right. leaves things open for interpretation. So in terms of smart contracts, you've got a lot of things going on here. You've got possible coding errors. You've got vulnerabilities. Um, so for example, you know, hacks against the spirit of a contract like I mentioned earlier or, or the intent of a contract. And and then, of course, um, as we've seen with, you know, maybe the past 10, 20 years of LegalZoom or, you know, regular templated documents, people might pull a template smart contract off the shelf without really actually understanding or knowing what it says. And then, of course, human beings are infinitely creative, um, they will find a way to do whatever they want, and at the same time, situations change and people need flexibility. So I 
at the end of the day, um, I truly believe that people still want and need to amend, modify, or terminate their smart contracts. So given all of these unresolved issues, um, what we're doing today is we are basically building a legal layer on top of the entire crypto space. So what that means is uh, we're building an SDK. You can think of it as one line of code, almost analogous to an arbitration clause, for example, that you would put in a traditional English contract. Um, you put that one line of code into your smart contract and to the extent a dispute ever arises or something's going wrong, you can trigger that one line of code. It freezes execution of a smart contract because remember, these are self-executing mechanisms. The entire thing gets kicked over to a dispute resolution marketplace because I don't believe that dispute resolution is a one-size-fits-all thing. And then for a lot of logistical and cultural reasons, um, the entire thing sits on top of a borderless digital jurisdiction because even if you are able to get across, the, across a lot of the logistical hurdles like, you know, actually knowing who the other contracting party is, because if you don't know, you can't, you know, serve a complaint uh, to the opposing party. You can't really even sue them in court. Um, even if you can get across those logistical hurdles, you know, have fun talking to your counsel, a judge, and a jury, all of whom think that Bitcoin, anything Bitcoin-related is inherently illegal and fraudulent. Um, <laughs> have fun explaining your smart contract to them. Oh, by the way, they can't read it because it's in code, so you'll have to call an expert witness to interpret what the smart contract says. Um, because less than 1% of the population can actually read code. So essentially right. what we're trying to create is a friendly private jurisdiction for the crypto community, by the crypto community, um, for them to be able to resolve disputes. Because I believe that smart contract adoption cannot take off unless and until you achieve transactional confidence. Because otherwise, every time you enter into one of these smart contracts, it's essentially like you're playing roulette, right? You don't know what the outcome is that you're going to get. Well, it sounds to me like it's definitely needed and makes a whole lot of sense. Basically, you have this uh, contract running on automatic pilot, and at least for now, it's bound to get into some accidents. So why not have some human intervention there to... Uh, help out when needed you know it's only uh on a on the basis of when when there's some some wall that uh that they come to where you need to jump in and help out right yeah and yeah and really the first the first most fundamental issue here is really just identifying the problem right so for example over the summer my social media feeds were full of headlines where someone would go out, they would ICO. A lot of these ICOs are, are actually powered by smart contracts, right? And in the first 15, 20 minutes of their ICO, a lot of them would get hacked for 2 or $3 million. And they would have to sit there and they would shrug their shoulders and be like, oops, 
oh, well, like, there's nothing we can really do about it. Um, and that doesn't work. That doesn't happen in the real world, right? You can't just sit there and be like, oh, sorry, guys, I lost $2 million of the money you gave me. Um, in the real world, that ends up in lawsuits. Um, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> right? So, so the first part of this, which we're actually um, pre-selling right now and we're launching in early January is a smart contract notification system. And that basically allows for smart contract users to be able to even monitor what is going on with their smart contract because it's actually not easy to do that today. Um, so basically the same way that banks, credit cards, and credit reporting companies might text or email you about unusual activity on your account, um, we will text or email a smart contract user and let them know about what's happening on their smart contract, i.e., if someone is draining funds from their smart contract. So at least they have a chance to run their computer, to run to their computer and stop it before the hacker gets too far. Right. All right. Well, we've covered definitely a lot of ground here. And I know that the people that are listening in and that will be listening in to the recorded version of this in the future would definitely like to know what, what resources they could turn to, to to learn more about this and get further in-depth knowledge about uh, blockchain, ICOs, smart contracts. What are some good recommendations for them? Yeah, so there's a lot to read. It really depends on what area they want to learn more about. Um, there's a lot of great blogs out there. I, for example, I blog on Crowdfund Insider. Um, there's also Coin Telegraph. Um, if they want to monitor and see what kind of ICOs are coming out, there's ICOalerts.com. Um, if they want to dig into the legal issues, I actually uh, tend to put out a lot of like mini updates on the space on my LinkedIn, so they can just follow me on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, right now, if you go out and read about this stuff, there's a lot of resources and information out there, but I'll also warn people that there's also a lot of bad resources and information. Like, there's literally still part, big parts of the crypto community that think that um, ICOs are unregulated, and uh, that's just not true. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that, Thank you for bringing that up because that's one question I want to get in before we close is the issue of regulation. Um, I know you and I had talked um, kind of offline about this before, which is what it seems to be this idea that, oh, well, this is based on some technology, so therefore it's not like stock or it's not a security. So the, the question of whether or not a token is a security is still unresolved, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's not unresolved, actually. So on July 27th of this year, the SEC released a, a report that they did, basically saying that the Dow and ICOs, um, you know, probably are securities and are regulated by all the same securities laws that traditional fundraising campaigns have been regulated by, right? Um, now, there is a possibility that an ICO or a token sale isn't a security. Um, that's entirely possible. It's just that uh, most of what I've seen 
and you know, even the new SEC chair has said that most of what he's seen, he actually had a, a quote a couple weeks ago where he said, you know, I haven't seen one that isn't a security. And it's not that it can't not be a security, it's just that people are being greedy and they're not structuring their ICO in a way that's not security. That's the problem right now. But in the U.S., to the extent an ICO is collecting money from U.S. investors, it is regulated by securities law. Um, if they're raising money from others outside of the United States, they are governed by the local laws and regulations of whatever jurisdiction they're raising money in. And every jurisdiction right now feels differently about ICOs. Mm-hmm. I do have one quick question from um, one of our listeners, Blake. He He's asking, do you know of any examples of ICOs that are truly based on a utility token? Like it being a Ooh. utility. Um. I feel like I've seen one or two, um, and I know some of my security attorney friends might have seen one in in all of you know the pitches and calls that they get. The vast majority of these, I would say, ninety nine percent of them, um, you know, to the extent that they sell to U.S. investors under U.S. laws at least, would be considered securities. And you have to remember, we're not just dealing with federal securities laws here, we're dealing with state securities laws. So even if under uh, federal securities laws it might not be a security, it might still be a security to a state regulator, right? Because the state regulators may have different tests. Um, and you know, personally, I would choose to be regulated uh, by federal securities law over state securities laws any day. Um, federal preemption is a, a wonderful thing. So, yes. um, yeah, but I, I would, you know, prefer not to, to name the ones that I have seen that I, I think more, popular do, more popularly do not represent securities. And I know, you know, in the early days, in late spring and summer, um, people were writing opinion letters um, on this, and now most of the respectable securities attorneys I talk to, they won't even talk to you, uh, or they won't even talk to an ICO issuer anymore unless um, the issuer concedes that it is a security. Um, I think people are really scared for their malpractice insurance risk. Um, They've seen uh, and heard what the SEC is saying on this point, and, you know, ICO issuers are a very interesting breed of clients. They will actually sit there and argue with you for hours over how not to make it a security. I know of some that have been opinion letter shopping, right? And so I think that's why securities attorneys are now taking an increasingly hard stance on the space. Well, I think that's... I think we could close on that. I mean, it's um, it's an interesting time. There's a lot of activity. And I just want to thank you, Amy, for spending a little bit of your uh, morning with us. I loved getting to know you better, learning more about blockchain, ICOs, and smart contracts. And it's actually really uh, exciting me to, to get into it more and uh, figure out, um, you know, what what it is exactly and how, how I might get some advantage from that. Um, 
so let me ask you that question that I have, um, the one that doesn't fit with the whole um, discussion here. But you know, one question I always ask uh, guests on uh, on the podcast are, um, you know, what's a place on your bucket list that you've never visited that you would like to, and why? So I've actually traveled the world a lot, but one of the places I've never actually been to is Greece. I've always mm. wanted to go. I've never quite made it, <laughs> but every time I look at the pictures, I'm like, oh, man, like that is the vacation I need. It's just so far away, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, next next chance I get to take a longer vacation, that's where I'd like to go. Well, it's... I, I hear it's beautiful. I haven't been there either myself. And uh, yeah, I, one of the reasons I ask is maybe it, it helps, uh, you know, motivate my guests to go there. Uh, because if you've wanted to go, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a delightful experience. So, um, Amy, yeah, I just want to thank you again for sharing your time and thoughts. How, how can people that are listening in keep in touch with you? Sure. So they can definitely follow me on LinkedIn. Um, it's Amy Y. Wan. Um, if they do try to connect with me, I, I get a lot of spam nowadays on LinkedIn. So um, please actually write a note. And I'm also on all, you know, social media, so Facebook, um, all of that sort of stuff. And then my company, uh, Bootstrap Legal, we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of stuff, so they can find me there. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you, Amy, for being my guest today. Uh, thank you all uh, for attending our teleconference, The Promise and Peril of Blockchain and ICOs with Amy Wan. Um, again, my name is Tom Martin. I want to thank GLSA for sponsoring. Uh, remember, joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Thanks again, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. All right. I'll see you all next month. Bye.